0: with David workman and um, I'm here with Kieran Hebden and we're just here to to sort of reminisce because we've both spent a lot of time with Steve over the years and uh, it was a real shock to, to us both when we found out that um, he'd passed away last week in in New York City and um, a real shock actually I mean we knew he was ill I knew I'd, I'd spent a bit of time with him you obviously spending a lot of time with him as well and uh, it felt like he was getting better actually
1: yeah it was kind of I'd speak to him one week and there'd be like good news about it and then speak to him another week he'd be having treatment again and be kind of downhill but it's just one of those fast kind of aggressive cancer things and I think uh, yeah it's all from the he only found out he was sick at the end of last year and it just happened really really quickly basically it just really um I think combination of that and the chemotherapy was really, really draining on on him as well. So yeah, it was quite a rapid rapid thing. And he died peacefully and stuff though, and last time I spoke to him he was very kind of at ease with the fact that he was going and things. So um yeah, I think that that's the good thing about it. it, is it didn't wasn't one of those real drawn out things, you know.
0: Yeah, it's it's not there's a lot of musicians who've been it's inevitable. A lot of people dying. I mean, Guru passed away this week, which was absolutely out of the blue, um, far too young. But um, when Steve Reed, I don't know, it really affected me deeply last week. And uh, I think it was because he was such an incredible spirit who really was interested beyond his world about music he was so honest and passionate about it all i've met so many musicians and they're great and it's brilliant but you realize that at the end of the day you know you're giving them some airtime and they're going to sell records Mm -hmm. but with steve it was uh it was a way of life and i haven't met anybody
1: like that yeah totally one of my good friends the first thing he said to me when i told him steve at was like oh i've never known anyone who was so into it he was so into it when he played you know it was definitely like people enjoy music and get off on it but steve was really really into it like in a sort of way that i haven't yeah that you don't experience in other other people i think everybody seemed to notice that about him and seemed to notice that he was so so different to anyone he'd ever met anyone he'd ever see make music or play music and different attitude about everything so i think he's uh yeah left a huge kind of hole really because such a kind of unique person i think
0: Let's play some of his tunes um, that he recorded. Um actually in his later years, um, well, the first track was one that you pulled out, which I didn't <laughs> realise actually that uh, Shadow had sampled the bass line at the front of it. And tell us the story about that because it wasn't <laughs> cleared, but Steve was cool about it, right?
1: Yeah, it wasn't cleared I think Steve was a bit like, Oh, this guy sampled my thing and he never asked but I think, you know, Steve was into was into all types of music, you know, he was never he wasn't like stuck in the past in any way. He's not gonna sit there listening to He'd phone me up and be like oh i've been listening to tribe called quest all morning or theo parish or something so you know he was totally into all sorts of modern music and sampling and all those things so i think you know he got it that shadow used his uh his bass uh, track from baseline for one of his tracks was cool with him i think
0: i mean to be honest with you if i was uh, a producer and around the time that shadow was making that music and he picked up that david Wirtman album you'd probably have gone hey there's no point trying to clear this this is so independent
1: yeah <laughs> it's like well david workman i think people haven't heard of so much yeah. he was a friend of steve's and playing on some of the records he was doing with steve Reed and things and um but it came out on steve's own label uh, mustavic sound and it's actually the lineup on the record it's the same pretty much as the band that was playing on Rhythmatism and nova and stuff like that it's a lot of the same guys so it sounds just like one of those
0: records let's play a track from his um, first album that he recorded for Soul Soul Jazz um, which uh, I don't know what the year was of this record actually it's like
1: 2005 or
0: 2006 yeah Yeah. and uh, this is before he went to Domino but um, it's good to hear this track again this is where he actually lived um, towards the end of his life um, in the Italian part of Switzerland around the beautiful lake of Lugano Steve (laughs) Reid Kieran Hebden, we're talking about Steve Reid and uh, that was a track called Lugano from his uh, first of his albums for well in fact the first album that Soul Jazz did they re-release some of his um, earlier products and then they actually made a proper new recording album with him with um, a great band as well, um, had John Edwards on there and Boris Nitz Vetev, who's brilliant and uh, a bunch of others really and of course Kieran on Electronics. Now how did you first come across Steve um what was your sort of first connection with him?
1: Um, well, I got into his music from from the Soul Jazz reissues actually. On they put it on the compilation, the United Sounds of mm. America, or something that mm. I got. Mm. It was a bit of a life changing record for me when I first heard that. Yeah, I've got it here. Yeah, I think I was like, I was just at college, I was like 19 or something, and that came out, <clears> and <throat> it was like a whole new world of music that yeah. was like my dream come true somehow. And um, I got into that, and then. A few years ago, I was looking for a drummer to work with. I had this idea of doing sort of drums and electronics sort of duo thing. And I mentioned to a friend of mine in uh, Paris, and um, he managed to track Steve down. He phoned me up one day. He wrote, I was like, You won't believe it, Steve Reed's still playing, and he's like living in Switzerland and things. And uh, Steve and I, he arranged for us to meet up at a show Steve was doing in London. And um, I met him, and we discussed the idea then and made a plan to do this show in paris which was like a month later and um i turned up in paris to meet him and we played a show at um cartier foundation or something like that. art gallery place and uh it was amazing it was like no like the sound check there was no rehearsal or anything the sound check was the first time we played and um we did that show and then we came back to london we played at the spits and it was going so well we just went straight into the studio the next day recorded the first. first couple of that we did two albums (laughs) straight away and i think from that moment something that i thought was maybe just going to be like a little sort of experiment or something i realized that whoa everything's changed my whole life's changed all the mute my whole understanding of music and what i was going to do musically and and steve and i were both just beside ourselves with excitement it was really um yeah really like this we both knew that this is what we wanted to do and the last five years it's been the main Main project I've been working on, sort of musically, the last sort of five years, and I mean, like I was telling you while that track was playing, we definitely, um, we definitely really went for it over the last five years. You know, like four albums and uh, traveled all over the world and stuff. And I think then the next tune we're about to play is Art Blake. Has, um You know, in all these travels with uh, with Steve, we'd listen to loads and loads of music while we we're on the road, and uh, it was really common for us to go into a record shop or something and buy a CD and. Um, there was one day in LA with me, Steve, and my sister, and um, he pulled out this Hart Blakey record, "Free for All," and said to me, uh, "You've got to hear this. You know, this is an absolute classic." And I didn't know. I was like, "Okay." And um, we rolled all the windows down on this like ridiculous, kind of like four by four, massive car we had in LA, and we had it on enormously loud. And Steve was just—he was freaking out in the car. It was like in total like ecstasy, like, and uh, yeah, seeing talking earlier about how much steve was into music you know seeing him put on a record like this and just enjoy it you know? and I, I think art blakey was a name that came up all the time when i was with him as someone that he just totally totally respected and loved and i think one of the first drummers that steve saw when he was a teenager as well that really connected with him and was just like that's what i want to do you know that's that's the real deal you know and i think he you really really respected art Blakey in a big way and his big influence and I think one of the reasons Steve went to Africa and things like that is because Blakey did it and stuff, so um, yeah, I think it's going to be impossible for me to ever listen to this record again without thinking of Steve straight away
0: Imagining every time one of those drum rolls kicks in, Steve Reed at the back of the four-by-four, absolutely, um, you know, like an adolescent, like a child, right? And, and you were telling me that actually Steve, his first school dance, Art Blakey played in the school hall.
1: Yeah, that, he told me that's where he first saw Art Blakey was at a school dance, <laughs> yeah. and that I think he said the other band was like a kind of steel pan calypso sort of band. Wow. and then, uh, you know, it must have been like kind of prom night sort of thing, and then Art Blakey played and he said it was life-changing absolute mesmerising, like blew his head off when he heard that and said he was just like the most kind of loudest, most powerful drummer he'd ever heard and I think, uh, yeah, Art Blakey was a bit of a god for him from then onwards
0: Did you ever get to talk to Steve about his time with all these legends that he, you know, he, he performed with, I mean he told me about the time when he was like this young 15, 16-year-old drummer. Regular family, right? Um, mm-hmm. He was living with in New York. Um, I think his dad was like professional or something. I and mean, you know, they, were, they were just getting on with life. And their, their kid was just really good at drums. And the word had got around Queens or wherever they were living mm-hmm. at the time. Um, and uh, there was this great drummer in New York. And so Barry Gordy heard about it. And he sent a car to pick him up and drove him all the way to
1: Detroit. I think what what happened was the it was another the Motown musicians used to do these school events, right? And they used to travel around the schools doing shows. That's how they heard it. And of yeah, and the vandellas the um the drummer was really really sick, and they'd heard about Steve, and that yeah they were like we we, we need a drummer, and uh, you know who's the best drummer around here? They were saying in the school or something, and they were like oh Steve, is the best. And I think that's how he ended up playing with them. Like they sent a the car whatever picked him up. Next him, thing you know, he was playing with like Martha. <laughs> those, yeah, and you know? then took him home afterwards. I was like driving him all the way to Detroit. Yeah, crazy. <laughs> wow. Yeah, the story's like, I, I mean, I think I've almost got his kind of history mapped out in my head. I spent a lot of time talking to him about all the stuff he'd done and kind of working it out. And because uh, he did that, and it kind of led into other things. And he started playing with a lot of soul musicians, mm. and I think people like Wilson Pickett and stuff. He toured around with for a long time, and um, and he was. At that time, though, he told me he was very much just taking whatever job was bringing him, uh, bringing money in. You know, so he was playing a whole variety of music and playing on Broadway for a bit, musical and stuff. But then I think he quit all and actually went and joined the circus for a little while because that was the best-paying gig he could get. You know, he was in the circus band doing the big drum rolls before the elephant stands on its foot, or something like, you know, weird, weird kind of things like that. And then um, I think the big turning point for him. He was playing with James Brown, all these various people. Yeah, he played on Popcorn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy. Like, and James Brown had two drummers at the time who was playing, you know, Steve said one of the drummers would hold down the real solid backbeat and the other drum would kind of freak out on top of it. And no surprise, Steve was the guy who had to freak out on, on top of it. And I think he was doing all this and he was going to see all these guys like Coltrane and everything every night. He says he just saw all the great New York kind of jazz musicians every night and then he just noticed that people like Art Blake and stuff—they were all going to Africa, and heading off there to go and, um, you know, and coming back with a different sound. And so Steve um, decided he needed to go to Africa. And I think about 65, 66, something like that. He got on a boat and uh, just went over to Africa with his drum kit and stayed there for like three years. And um, he did his three years in Africa, like playing with whoever he could find, and he even ended up playing with Fela Kuti and some of those guys at some point. And I think studied with, uh, he says when he first got in the band, you were only allowed to play cowbell and they had a whole kind of training thing for musicians and they teach you all the different kind of rhythmic techniques and stuff. So Steve was there having a good time, but definitely kind of studying as well. And, um, he came back from Africa and I think very soon after he got back, he was put in prison because he wouldn't fight in Vietnam. And so I think he was in prison for a couple of years and, uh, then, when he got out of prison, that's when he really started doing all the jazz stuff more. I think that's when he set up his own label. Uh, it's when he started. He was playing in the Sun Ra Orchestra for a bit. I think that's just kind of that period in the seventies that he was putting out the records. Some of the records being playing today and stuff. He was very involved in the whole kind of like jazz scene, and I think uh, he was pretty angry when he got out of prison, as you can imagine. So I think he was pretty militant around then as well, and like, um, yeah, and I, th- I think he was doing all the jazz stuff, but then also started doing session work. I think uh, playing with Peggy Lee and Fats Domino and people like that, I think he was making good money doing kind of live circuit with with people like that as well. So, yeah, I think one of the differences about Steve compared to all uh, compared to lots of other jazz musicians and stuff is he wasn't just playing one type of music. He was actually, you know, he he didn't see big kind of boundaries between all these different things he saw, you know, playing jazz and soul and playing funk or whatever or that that was quite natural to him to like be playing all these different styles of music and and I think right up until the end I mean that's one of the reasons I feel like I connected with him so well is he's so open minded you know he wasn't there was no way that he was stuck in the past or anything he was very interested in his music moving on developing and embracing all these different styles and things you know and I, th- I think you can see that through everything he's done in his whole career from the from when he was a teenager I think let's
0: play the um first thing that you nailed with him on vinyl um and this is a song that you used to open up a lot of the shows with as well
2: yeah
1: i think uh the first recording session we did this is the first track we did and uh called it kind of morning prayer and i think it was this track i think once we had it down that was definitely a kind of an epiphany for me you know at least it's like whoa this is a whole other new kind of musical realm and something that i'm really just felt so excited about it and so and uh, I think we both really identified with this track and it became something that was like an opening pretty much every live show we ever did. I think this was the first thing we played or at least a bit of a kind of theme from it or something. And uh, yeah, it became our kind of, it, you know, once we heard that, we both knew that this was our, uh, you know, our mantra or something, you know. <laughs>
0: Sounding great. R.I.P. Steve Reed Going through some music with Kieran Hebden, and uh, it's great to hear this track again. How did you work it in the studio together? Was it really literally sort of you started something, he put a beat in, and then it was? How did it? Did you rehearse? Did you?
1: You know, uh, it's just the same as the live shows. It yeah. was like all, all the music was always based around. There'd be kind of like melodies and riffs and things that would be. I'd have, I'd have played Steve a little burst or whatever, and we'd build something around that. But the kind of compositions and tempos and things were pretty kind of freeform. We decided that in the moment. So if you came to the show, you recognize the tunes and things, but you know, they're always played in a slightly kind of different way. And we'd sit up totally opposite each other, really, really close, so we could really see each other, what was going on. We'd just play in the studio and leave the tape rolling and, and uh, go for it. Yeah, it was. Yeah, the records are exactly how things were the shows as well.
0: And uh, we're about to play a real exclusive that you found from a gig in 2006. Um, tell us, give us a little build-up on this next track we're about to play.
1: Um, well, yeah, 2006, Steve and I were, we were touring all over and really started doing the festivals quite a lot, which was, I and mean, it was just wonderful, like, having got to place in, like, big audiences and Seeing like young people had never seen anything like Steve before, really like freaking out. And we're doing this festival called the Green Man, and um, he came over to my house in the morning, and we we're heading off. And I just had this thought: I was like, you know, we're playing, we're playing like in a big field out in the countryside on a Saturday night in England. I was like, we should be playing like rave music, you know? That should be that's the that's the t- tradition here. And um, Steve was at my house, and I played him uh, some of Derek May's Strings for Life, which he hadn't heard before. I was like, check this out. I want us to do something with this tonight and i'd sampled little bits of the piano riffs and stuff into my computer beforehand so i played him a bit and he was like oh yeah, yeah I'm, I'm into that and then uh that night we were we were doing green man and it's a big show for us like a couple of thousand people and going really really well and uh i suddenly i dropped that piano riff from strings of life in and, and just it was one of the greatest moments i've ever had with steve like he responded like kind of full force playing like so heavy and and the crowd was just going mad you know they recognized the riff and everything and it was this totally totally like fantastic one of the, one of the highlights of my life you know when i think that, and luckily it was recorded, it was filmed as well that uh that show and there's a there's a documentary that was made about me and that yeah that we still haven't put out or done anything with but it's got um it's got the footage of that moment in it and yeah i'll never ever forget this you know it's quite a hearing steve play strings of life (laughs) (laughs) let's go
0: Pretty wild strings of life recorded live at the Green Man Festival, and uh, in the background, it's just great to um, just find out more and more tracks that Steve performed on, like Popcorn for James Brown. And we're kind of listening to it, Kieran and I, just and It is the rim shot it's the snail.
1: I think it sounds like his symbol to me. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I kind of I spend a lot of time with Steve talking to him, trying to work out, trying to help him remember all the things he'd played on and stuff, and. He said, "In those days, you were just doing the gigs, and then you'd do like a bit of recording here and there. And he wouldn't even make note of, you know, which sessions came out and which didn't and stuff. So, but uh, yeah, he, he said he thinks popcorn's one of the. He remembers playing at Lowe's and it's one of the ones he remembers recording. So, uh,
2: <laughs> someone yeah, sounds like him.
0: I wonder if someone. Well, I mean, he, only he would have, because he never wrote this stuff down. So, what he recorded. I'd like to know if he did any recordings for Sunra. He performed with Sunra."
1: Yeah, he was doing all sorts of Ra in the like early seventies. So I mean those sunra records around then are like got like just hand drawn covers and all sorts of manners. So I think um yeah, I need I need to go through them one day and see um see if any fit into the time period and yeah. Um, yeah if he can hear him on anything
0: do, you know? do the proper discography yeah. thing and uh, it was funny because you were telling me also I remember there was a documentary being made of him um, a while ago and it never came out so that, that, there's a load of great stuff there which um, Faye and Sarah are working on
1: yeah like uh, yeah, uh, Faye and Sarah two filmmakers who did loads of stuff with me and Steve We um, they made a whole, kind of filmed us for a whole summer doing festivals and things and all the recordings and things we were doing and I guess in 2006 and um, we put that some snippets and stuff for on YouTube and things, but there's a half hour documentary. So uh, yeah, stuff that we just need to get out at some point and they yeah. probably filmed lots of our live stuff. And uh, Steve and I went to Africa as well and worked on a project there and that was all filmed as well. So yeah, when I am, um, yeah, just thinking over the last few years since I've known Steve, we really, really properly documented everything and did as much recording and stuff as we could do. So uh that, that's really nice for me you know knowing that everything's there and uh you know properly kind of documented from that period so.
0: Yeah, well, I was a bit incorrect with my um, documentation with regards to where he came from, because it wasn't Queens, it was the Bronx.
1: The Bronx, yeah.
0: That's where he was brought up and everything back in the day, and he lived so close to, to John Coltrane, and, and you know, apparently, yeah. I mean, did you tell your stories about him staying there and stuff, he used to live in the Yeah, house I think,
1: about- yeah, amazing musicians babysitting him and stuff, and <laughs> I think uh, Coltrane lived a few doors down from him, and, uh, yeah. you know, he would they would practice together and stuff, yeah. and, Apparently, Coltrane used to, like, practice a lot with drummers and things. And, uh, yeah, so says they used to hang out and, yeah. you know, go play at each other's houses and stuff. And I think, uh yeah, the time when Steve, that time in New York just sounds like one of the kind of <clears throat> richest times for mm. music there's ever been, really. Mm. So much great mm. talent in a small space, you know.
0: And let's not forget as well that uh, he ended up, um, amongst other um, great sessions, playing on Miles Davis's Tutu
1: yeah yeah and uh and he told me that when that that was like a real blessing for him it was at a time it was running on real like hard times he said he couldn't even pay his um couldn't pay for his telephone bill or his electricity at the time and uh miles was trying to get in touch with him but they couldn't phone him up and that's uh they've got of him through a friend or something he managed to bring him a message and uh he did the record i think he only played on one track on the on the record but i think he then went to japan and stuff and toured with miles for a while doing some live stuff in the early 80s and things and yeah the list of musicians that steve encountered over the years is is absolutely incredible you know he did loads of work with people like Weldon irving and stuff and you know i don't think there's any recordings but you know i can't can't even begin to imagine how much great music you know they must have um must have been going on with all those guys
0: let's play the the track which uh, first brought my attention his attention to me or whatever however you say it the track which uh, blew all our brains when we first heard it what mm-hmm. is this tune and uh, it was steve reed lines of judah mm-hmm. Read lines of Judah, and uh, as Kieran was saying, it's really worth checking out his uh, his sleeve notes to um, a lot of those original albums that he put out because um, they're, they're they're full of some absolutely brilliant quotes, aren't they?
1: Yeah, it's definitely you get a good feel for. Uh, Steve's uh, vibe and stuff when you, when you read the back sleeves
0: <laughs> is it Nova is a positive force against a conspiracy of businessmen large record company executives radio program directors club owners critics promoters who knowingly or unknowingly control the quality style and quantity of the music that you hear <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he,
1: he, he laid it down on those notes for sure <laughs> excellent <laughs>
0: Um, okay, uh, what was I going to say? So, yeah, and so basically we were talking about this discography and uh, we're going to try and get as much information that you've got and put it up on the websites as yeah. well. So, and um, any information that you've got um, listening right now, um, please get in touch. Now, the other thing that I was going to, um, which you know, which we're in the process of, of putting together at the moment is a sort of Steve Reed Foundation type of um situation that i was speaking to um stewart from soul jazz about because when i was going over to the states um, recently when i visited him and he wanted to write more stuff about you know he was really keen to to get his 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 his, his words out there and um write his journals really and wanted his um, thoughts obviously you've got a whole heap of that having taught of him for so long and one thing that struck me was how can a man with so much um you know um who's done so much for music and for all of us be in such a difficult place um mm-hmm. in terms of um in terms of health insurance and all that kind of stuff and as you know a lot of things are slowly changing in america with what obama's doing and hopefully there'll be some more support but Really, I think there's a lot of musicians and and artists who um, definitely um, find themselves in a lot of difficulties. So I think that this experience with Steve um, has definitely um, motivated me to to try and set up a situation where we can kind of you know create some sort of a charity for musicians like Steve who've um, who've just given so much and who ended up not really getting the support that they deserved.
1: Yeah, totally. And um, one of the things Steve and I would talk about quite a lot is we'd see. hear hear stories about you know musicians that he's loved and admired all his life and hearing sad stories about their last years you know especially with the medical situation in Mm. america you know if you don't have the right and it's very hard for musicians to have proper health insurance and things you'd hear all sorts of tragic stories all the time and about you know musicians just people losing track of them and then being in an awful way and not getting proper care and things so yeah it's definitely a bit of a situation mm.
0: so you know, um, watch the space for all of that um, we'll finish off of a track um, it's been really great actually um, sharing this time with you Kieran and uh and being able to celebrate um, just a, a small part of um, the music. It's so brilliant that you managed to to work with him um, at a really very creative time in his life with all these brilliant records on soul jazz and on domino and there is all this footage that's going to be seen mm-hmm. soon and, you know, it's good, you know, he, 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 he his message got across and I think it's been great to, um, to hear all the music once again and, and we're going to finish off with a track which you've chosen and one of the great musicians that he performed with um, quite a lot in the 70s was the, was the brilliant Arthur Blythe. Yeah, I, I always wanted him to come over to the UK. Mm-hmm. He tried to hook that up a few times.
1: Yeah, we talked about it. Like, I think Arthur's, I think he's based in like LA or something yeah. like that. And we were trying to arrange getting him over and having them play together again, but didn't work out mm. for mm. whatever reason. But um, yeah, Steve played on a couple of his records in the 70s, I think it is, for maybe early 80s on yeah. the India Navigation label. And uh, Steve's name crops up on quite a few kind of jazz releases. Around that time, and um,
0: you know, it's amazing just going back to who Steve and his energy. Because I remember Steve, he'd come to London and we'd do an interview or something, and he'd go, "You know this Arthur Blythe record I did." I was like, "I don't think I've got that one." Mm-hmm. And literally, he'd go back to Switzerland and he'd find a copy, and he would send it to me by yeah, post. You yeah, totally. know, I would get it the next day. I've got
1: the, piles of these mad CDs with this scrawl yeah, over them, like, he, "Oh
0: yeah, yeah, you got to hear this." Yeah, 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 <laughs> And he's got such fantastic handwriting as well. <laughs> Definitely, that's that's really memorable. Okay, well, so this is uh, this is our. Last track today. Um, Thanks, Kieran, and um, and yeah, let's um, let's keep his um, spirit alive. That will certainly keep going, and uh, we'll finish off with this Arthur Blythe track with some killer swinging hardcore drums on it. Let's go. Thanks, Kieran. To hear this story about the tuba Talk, t- tell us what um, Steve would say about the tuba
1: was, uh, the records that Arthur Blythe was doing around here always had tuba on, he got rid of the bass players like tuba, you know, this is this is the next big thing, I want to have tuba And I think Arthur Blythe, he signed this big deal with Columbia Records around the time and you know, he was going to be like one of the next big kind of jazz guys <laughs> and everything with his major label deal and uh, St- Steve was like you know, Arthur he had this there was this chance that he was going to be quite a big guy and everything, but he went down the tuba route. He got obsessed with the tuba and kept putting these uh, crazy ass records out with all this tuba on and stuff. And you know they weren't really selling in big numbers or anything. And uh, Steve and I would laugh about that all the time. And Steve would always refer to like going down the tuba route, you know, as being like, uh, you know, if you were going to do something way out there that definitely nobody was going to buy. <laughs> so if we recorded something particularly bizarre, we'd sit together and Steve would be like we're definitely going down the tuba route with this one you know